On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast brought to you by News Corp. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, and in today's episode, I have a special guest on the line. He's the assistant editor of Crick Info and author of the excellent book, Bradman and Packer. Welcome to the show, Daniel Bressig. How are you? Great to be here, Menas. Uh, very well indeed. Now, you've written a really interesting book on, on the deal that was done between Bradman and Packer to end the World Series cricket uh, war, as it's been looked back on. And uh, the book's not just about those two and what the deal they did, but also, you know, it goes into the effect that had on um, cricket in this country and the explosion in rights and the broadcasting and all that stuff. It's a really good book and loads of stuff in there. But what jumped out at me was that, the Australian public has been sold a con job about how World Series cricket was was and how it uh, sort of gave the the players a better deal when it it really didn't. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think that's a, a very fair comment in the in the sense that I feel as though if you look at the the the, the whole of the of the story and a lot of that story um, has sort of been buried in you know, old ACB board minutes and the recollections of people involved that uh, I don't think uh, the ACB and the administration side should necessarily venerate Sir Donald Bradman as an administrator quite as much as they as they do uh, in terms of what happened uh, here in, in that, you know, he essentially got played off the break by, by Packer and, and his lieutenants. Equally... I feel as though I don't think the players should venerate Kerry Packer as much as they do. Yes, he brought in a lot of innovation to the game and brought in full-time professionalism in terms of players earning a living wage, but that was really a side effect of what he really wanted, which was exclusive television rights for a long term, and the money he made out of that was enormous relative to the money that was actually coming back into the game for quite some time. Yeah, now Winston Churchill allegedly said once that history is written by the victors. And I I feel that because Channel 9 and PBL marketing had such tight control over cricket after they did this deal in the late 70s, that they were really able to manufacture a sort of image and story about you know, how good it was for the game, what happened and how things were sort of turned around for the better. But really the deal that Bradman did with Packer had such far-reaching ramifications that it could be said to contribute to the underarm incident. It could be said to make players look at going on rebel tours to South Africa. And then even after that, I guess it in a sort of roundabout way led to the revenue share model that we have now. So really, you know, PBL and Channel 9 did a great job to sell us this story. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I suppose it's, um, uh, I, you know, one of the things I find 
fascinating about the what the the whole sweep of the of the story is that it really takes us from the beginning of that relationship between cricket and and packer right through to the end of it and uh yes while um packer died in 2005 the really the 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 end of that story is last year where you know cricket moves from 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 nine slash packer to um to fox and and to and to news corp and 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 effectively to rupert burdock so you know you get the 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 eventual move from from one mogul's former empire i suppose to to another one that's that's still current but yeah pbl's marketing and and i guess the conviction of packer and linton taylor in particular his his second in command uh that only PDL had the resources and the and the vision and the professionalism to market the game effectively, and that included telling the story of the game to the public over a long period of time, whether it was on television broadcasts or a lot of the, the publications that they put out. Uh, yeah, it really did affect the the understanding of a lot of people. They're not just uh, the public, but players, administrators, people within the game. Of, of what had actually taken place and how and why. And uh, one of the things that, that always fascinated me was the talking down of test cricket in particular by PBL and by Linton Taylor through the 1980s and the idea that, uh, you know, it really needed one-day cricket to kind of um, bankroll it. Uh, but what you see is that at the same time as the ACB becomes a bit more self-reliant and starts to negotiate harder bargains with PBL, the Australian test team and the Australian team's stocks start to rise. And so when you get to the mid-90s, when they break the PBL deal and start promoting test cricket, you see the health of that game uh, and its attraction to the public increase exponentially relative to what it was like in the 1980s. So uh, PBL, for all of its marketing expertise, uh, there were some significant things that, uh, that could have been done differently. Yeah, now Mark Taylor said in your book that he felt that the players at the time had gone back to the same situation as before World Series cricket started and there wasn't really a big legacy for the players in that sense. But he did feel the one legacy was that Ian Chappell left a sort of message that you could stand up for what you wanted as a player. Uh, do you think that's a fair enough assessment? Yeah, I do. And and the the you know one of the many subplots of the story is that the the moves to create a players' association around the time of World Series cricket really fall by the wayside straight after the peace deal because neither uh, the board nor Packer really um, wanted or or needed that. Now that uh, that the ACB had. Uh, you know, peace in terms of its broadcasting deal, and Packer had a monopoly on on cricket. Therefore, you see that uh, player power was really a make weight for Packer in getting the board into the position that he wanted to uh, to get it into. Uh, and so that was that meant that yeah, it was another you know 17 years really until the ACA was formed. Uh, but at the same time, in that period. It's really not um, until the mid-1990s, so a long time after the the end of, of the World Series cricket split, that you had a similarly strong and senior group of players that were the sorts of players that Packer had poached in the first place. So the Chapel brothers, Lily, Marsh, all of those players, uh, that sort of senior core of players who could come together and get something going 
didn't really exist again in Australian cricket until the mid nineties when you had Taylor, the wars, Warren, etc. So uh, I think there's a bit of a parallel there in the forming of the ACA when you've got a group of senior players who, as Taylor says, are no longer simply concerned about keeping their places in the team. They're secure enough in the team that they start to look a bit more widely. Yeah, shock horror. You know, a big businessman was really concerned about making money above everything else. Uh, Indeed. Now, let, let's talk about this secret meeting between Kerry Packer and Don Bradman that took years and years to come to, to light what happened. And I think you say in your book that, you know, you first heard about this meeting when Richie Benno was talking at a function. So it really did remain a, a secret. Why is it that that meeting between Packer and Bradman was kept so secret? I don't think either of them... Uh, wanted the full circumstances to be known for different reasons. I don't think that uh, Bradman, particularly for his friends in the cricket establishment, wanted to be seen as the uh, as the person who dealt directly with Packer, who was someone who was uh, regarded as as um, you know this this uh, this robber baron basically by the cricket establishment. And so on Bradman's side, secrecy was important there. I think it was a lot about reputation. Uh, on Packer's side, uh, I don't think he wanted necessarily to be seen to be the one who um, got on the plane and, and flew to Adelaide and, and, and went to the, the um, uh, effectively, you know, the godfather's house to, to broker a, a peace deal. Uh, he um, was always keen on the on the idea of we don't go to them, they come to us, and 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 the fact that he was wanting an end to the World Series cricket split just as much as the board was for different reasons. Uh, the board was going broke. Packer was spending a lot of money on World Series cricket, but he could afford it, and so he really just wanted to end something that he hadn't necessarily wanted to start in the first place because he wasn't, he didn't see himself as, as a cricket administrator. He was a broadcaster. So I think those were the sort of the, the angles the two were coming from in terms of individual reasons. But I think equally secrecy was important to both of them. It wasn't uh, a case where they wanted their dealings to be out in the public in any case, whatever they were and, and both guarded their secrets very jealously and very um, zealously, I should say, until the time that, that both of them died. Yeah, it's a constant theme in your book that Don Bradman was very keen on maintaining his image and almost manufacturing an image. Uh, you know, he, he just said, Bradman seemed to want complete control over what was done with his name and image. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that has continued uh, in in the years after, and I, I'd, I'd have to defer to uh, to the great cricket writer Gideon Haig here in terms of how Bradman has been portrayed in in the years since uh, his death. There is to to quote Gideon, there's the Donald Brand, Brand name, who is the 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 um uh, the the image and the name who who's um, who is very tightly controlled in terms of of what he or it represents. Uh, but then there's the Donald Badman, who you know it's almost the the reaction to that by certain people who um, who didn't necessarily get along with him when he was alive or had heard stories about him uh, not always being the, the greatest or warmest person when he was alive and, and wanting to get that 
out there when I think the the truth really, um, as is so often the case, lies somewhere in between those two extremes. And, and I think he had genuine care and concern about the welfare of the game, but I just feel that when you get to 1979 and he's also um, wanting to come to the end of his time as a cricket administrator, wanting to to um, to to reduce the the amount of of work he was doing. Certainly, obviously, not the chairman of the ACB anymore. And finding that right at this point, there's this huge schism in the game, and wanting to 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 seek an end to it, and also wanting to seek an end to it where his reputation was not going to be singed by it. Yeah, I was always under the impression that one of the reasons World Series cricket happened was that Don Bradman was very tight when he was on the Australian Cricket Board and that he was really against p- paying the players anything. So that led the, helped, let, you know, force the players to look at other options. Yeah, and, and it it was not simply a matter of not wanting to pay the players anything. It was that if we're going to administer the game and pay for the cost of the game within the context of what they thought cricket was worth, then they couldn't afford to play them to uh, pay the players. Uh, they couldn't afford to pay the players what the players thought they were worth. There was this big disconnect there because the ACB's relatively limited at that, at that stage understanding of, of the value of cricket uh, meant that they thought that the main money in cricket was through the turnstiles, uh, a little bit of sponsorship, and a broadcast rights deal with the, AC, uh, with the ABC that was as much about coverage around Australia as it was about the dollar value of the rights deal. So if you were to come into that conversation and say, well, actually the game is worth a whole lot more money than that, particularly in a broadcast sense, and so much so that it would dwarf the amount of money you're going to make from the gate, uh, I think that would be the start of a different conversation and certainly one in which professional pay for players would have been something that Bradman might have been a little more amenable to. But the fact of the matter is that it wasn't until the mid-1980s at the earliest that there was anyone around Australian cricket administration who fully understood that the game was worth a hell of a lot more than uh, they believed it was. Yeah, you um, wrote in your book that Ian Chappell thought Don Bradman would be more sympathetic after Bradman had his own struggles with the Australian Cricket Board when Bradman was playing. But, you know, Ian Chappell felt that when he was asking Bradman for better conditions and better pay, it was like they were asking Bradman to spend his own money. And I guess you can't take away the influence that the Great Depression had on Bradman and his other administrators from that era that they were petrified of going broke. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, And one of the key elements of the deal that was struck in the end in 1979 was that the ACB got a guaranteed amount of money every year. Not a great deal of money relative to what Packer would be earning off the game uh, and certainly not a great deal of money in terms of what was to follow in the 80s in terms of inflation to um, to mean that, yeah, the, under the terms of the original deal, the ACB was getting in, say, 1988, not a whole lot more than it was getting in 1979, which um, uh, for, for those who can remember the Australian um, uh, economy in the 1980s, that was uh, not a very good position to be in. So uh, that was uh, one point in which you had, yeah, depression-era thinking influencing 
very important strategic financial decisions that meant that cricket and the ACB were not in the position that they should have been relative to the amount of broadcast cricket and advertising revenue that was being hauled in. It's also in the book you touch on the wedge that happened between Richie Benno and Don Bradman when World Series came to happen. Did they ever sort of, did that ever, did they get over that in the end, do you think? Well, I think it's pretty clear that they did in the sense that that Richie was one of the uh, speakers at Sir Donald Brabant's memorial service in 2001. I don't think that would have happened uh, had they not patched things up in the years after. And um, Sir Donald um, left his family quite detailed, specific instructions as to who and how that memorial service was to be conducted. One of the things that I found interesting in research for that was that he uh, he wanted the, the MC or that his family wanted the MC to, um, to to be Ray Martin, of course, who had interviewed Bradman famously in 1996 on Channel 9. And uh, that, uh, yeah, the, the person that they wanted to to sort of compare the the memorial service was was someone from the from the Packer stable was uh, was intriguing to me and equally interesting was the fact that the ABC who were who were broadcasting it pushed back and um, uh, insisted that uh, that one of their own um, contractors Tony Squires take the role. Bit of a uh, final uh, pushback from the ABC against Packer. Yes, well the the the. Um, the fact of the matter is that, uh, yeah, the, the ABC were, were very harshly treated through this this whole period. Now, it's certainly true that uh, the ABC were underpaying for the rights, but they were not they were not paying any less than what the ACB had been asking for them because the the, the ACB board directors, uh, you know, Bradman in particular, just didn't have a concept of what these uh, television rights were actually worth. Now, uh, subsequent to the Packer deal. Uh, the ABC finds itself having to pay Packer a million dollars a season for the rights to broadcast cricket into regional areas that the Nine Network at that stage couldn't reach, which is some kind of incredible, you know, cosmic joke on the ABC, given that previously they had owned the rights to all of Australian cricket to broadcast into every market for a fraction of that amount. So it's not necessarily a story in which uh, members of or, or staff members or directors or executives of the of the ABC can can look on it too fondly. What stood out for me in your book as well was that at the time the players that went with World Series cricket got no sympathy from much of the Australian public and the press at the time. They were you know a lot of the players were called pirates for deserting Australian cricket. Yeah, it it was it was a source of a lot of bitterness. Uh, it was a source of a a, a lot of sense of uh, abandonment by the establishment. I mean, if you think in relative terms, if Brabman was being cold to Richie Benno, someone who he had a lot of history with and a close uh, cricketing relationship with, how was uh, you know a, a young player like a David Hooks? Uh, or you know Rod Marsh, for, to, to name two examples. How were they going to be seen by the by the cricket establishment, even after it was sort of contractually written into the peace deal that uh, that no prejudice should be held against those players? And, and I think one of the many side effects of of, of this deal and, and and the way that it played out was that when you had a situation where 
Kim Hughes became the captain of the Australian team, Rod Marsh clearly wanted that job and Dennis Lilly clearly wanted Rod Marsh to have that job. It never came to a, a position where the argument or the discussion was as simple as who is the best captain. There was so much baggage there in terms of who do we want representing Australian cricket as the as the captain. And uh, once Greg Chappell was no longer captaining all of the time, and he in a in a quite you know remarkable way is is able to to maintain a a, um, a strong kind of I guess reputational sense. Um, with the establishment at the same time as being a part of World Series cricket. But once he is out of the picture, there's seemingly no way that a number of the, the states would, would countenance Rod March as captain, even though Hughes clearly had his flaws. So I think that's a, a good example of the the after effects of, as you say, the, the, the players being seen as, as pirates and mercenaries. Now Ian Chappell said during the Sandpaper Gate fiasco last year that if you think Sandpaper Gate was controversial, you know, World Series cricket was way more controversial and, you know, him and his other World Series players couldn't even go to the nets, you know, when there are other cricketers around. So just a, some, a sort of different level, I guess. What about the the deal? So Bradman and Packer, they're, they're in this meeting and it seems like Bradman could see that they had to make a deal and I think you write in your book that the World Series cricket game at the SCG in November 1978 really sort of opened the world's eyes to the possibilities of World Series cricket. So Bradman could see that he had to do a deal. He wanted to leave the ACB board, so he didn't want to leave a legacy of, I guess, you know, the game still being divided. And on the other side, he had Kerry Packer, who didn't want to be a cricket administrator. He wanted to run a TV network. So they came together to to make this deal. But it seems like Bradman didn't realise he had any leverage in the negotiations and just gave up all the ground to Packer. Yeah, well, the, the, the things that he wanted were very simple and very, I suppose you'd say, baseline in terms of administrative control and, uh, you know, obviously a, a financial improvement in terms of the value of, of um, what was being paid for the television rights. Uh, and then also... You know, there's an element of of Bradman the whole way through as an administrator who is a an advocate of uh, you know what was referred to back in the 60s as brighter cricket. You know, moving the game along, more aggressive batsmanship, a, a balance. Intriguingly enough, given what followed between pace bowling and attacking spin bowling, there wasn't a whole lot of attacking spin bowling to be seen in the 80s. But that's a that's a, that's another um, complication, I suppose. Uh, so when he was hearing about things like coloured clothing, like floodlit cricket, like limited overs matches, uh, he wasn't given to oppose that, uh, not only because he knew that Packer and Linton Taylor wanted that, but also because he knew that cricket did need to find ways to attract new audiences. And I think, you know, the, the one of the elements of, I suppose, the, the PBL and Nine version of history that does hold up, that is correct, is that Packer's involvement in cricket really it it expedites change in the game that was probably already starting to happen, but would have just taken many more years to uh, to take place. Because of course you've got the the limited overs game is starting to become a, uh, a an element of of import within the game. If you think about the 1975 World Cup final, which was broadcast live back into Australia, and that was um, a huge 
uh, moment in terms of realising the wider attraction of the game. Uh, Australia are starting to play limited overs internationals at home. Certainly they played them against England in 1978-79, opposite World Series cricket. So there is starting to be a bit of innovation in the game, which Bradman was always an advocate of. But of course, the pace at which... Uh, Packer was able to to bring that in far outstripped anything that had been within the board's imagination. Now you mentioned the 1975 World Cup. Just on a side note, my jaw hit the floor when in your book it wrote that the 1987 World Cup final they they turned off the coverage halfway through to show a movie in Sydney and Melbourne. Like that's just unbelievable. Yes, well that that um, I think is a good example of you know cricket. And cricket administrators always need to know that uh, while they have stronger and more, I guess you'd say, mutually beneficial relationships with broadcasters as time goes on, it's always it's always got to be clear in their mind that they're essentially dealing with people who are going to see their game as a product and a product that can be at various moments discarded if there's another product is that they think is going to make more money for them in a, in a given moment. And so it's, uh, you know, beholden upon the administrators to um, keep the balance of power in such a way that uh, they can't allow that sort of thing to uh, to happen. Now, the 1987 World Cup final, uh, that takes place during a period in which Packer's not involved in cricket. That's that's during the kind of interregnum between periods where, where Packer owns nine, where, where he'd sold it to, to Alan Bond. And that's actually a pretty significant period in terms of the change in relationship between the ACB and Channel 9 and, and PBL. And the, the fact that they went to a movie rather than um, uh, showing the whole World Cup final probably illustrates that there was still a fair bit of, I suppose you'd say, growing pains to be had in the relationship. I'm, I'm annoyed about that. Even 30-odd years later, it's still frustrating thinking that they would do that. Well, I grew up in Adelaide, so I would have been fine. <laughs> That's good. All right, listeners, we are going to take a quick break on the podcast. I've got on the line Daniel Brettig, who's written the excellent book, Bradman and Packer, The Deal That Changed Cricket. Daniel, where's a good place for listeners to maybe pick up your book if uh, they're interested after hearing us talk about it? Well, it's, uh, as I say, should be available in all good bookstores. Uh, You can also uh, order it directly from Slattery Media's uh, website, uh, so that's the the publisher of the of the book, uh, and it can it can certainly be purchased at online booksellers. Uh, should you be um, overseas or not in position to get to a shop. Yeah, listeners, I urge you to go and have a look for that book. It is a fascinating read, and so many of the issues ring true now. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then after the break. Daniel and I are going to look at the poor legacy left by the Bradman and Packer deal. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Menas. I have on the line Daniel Brettig, author of the book Bradman and Packer. And that was the famous World Series cricket theme song, Care of Mojo Marketing. The song was pretty good, Dan, despite whatever we think about the deal. It was a pretty catchy tune. Oh, absolutely. And the ability of uh, of Nine and PBL to, to sell the game and, and get people interested in it. Uh, I think their sense of their ability to do it and I suppose their rightness in how they did it was very much bolstered by the fact that 
they were able to get such growth and interest in the game from season one of World Series cricket to the start of season two of World Series cricket. You know, it was enormous exponential growth in the, in the course of, of a couple of years. But of course, that's not exactly the same thing as marketing and administering an establishment game that is far broader, that has a lot more to it, uh, that has a, a an international schedule that's a lot more um, changeable year to year. So uh, the, the selling of the of the game in World Series cricket was was very effective. But of course, as you, as you mentioned with the with the deal, it was also a, a case of who were they selling it for and who was going to be the beneficiary of the sale. Channel Nine and Kerry Packer to answer your question. So they, they were able to do a ten year deal between Nine and PBL and the Australian Cricket Board. And and that deal really did have a huge, wide-ranging influence. It's, it's interesting. I have two insights into this thing. At the early 90s, a good friend of the family's was the manager of the Australian cricket team. And there was a strange relationship between Channel 9 and Australian cricket at that time. You know, this sort of interwoven interests of both of them. But it, you could tell it was kind of starting to fracture the relationship between Nine and the Australian Cricket Board, but that, you know Nine was still keen to maintain control, but really was starting to lose control. Yeah, absolutely. The the ACB was with time and with different administrators uh, sitting around the board table or in the executive uh, was working out that they were earning um, to to um, to quote a report from the book uh, a peppercorn payment for television rights relative to what they were actually worth. Uh, and equally that they weren't completely happy with the kind of direction that the marketing was was taking, particularly as I, I referred to earlier, the fact that uh, not enough was being done to promote test cricket in um, the belief that, uh, no, it wasn't a dying format of the game. It was one that was uh, merely not being sold well enough relative to one-day cricket. Yeah, now Tony Gregg said about Kerry Packer that Kerry Packer would often say, you only get one Alan Bond in your life, and I've had mine, and that was referring to the sale of nine to Bond, and then Kerry Packer was able to buy it back at a lot less. But Tony Gregg makes the point that Kerry Packer also had the Australian Cricket Board. And, you know, you quote in the figure that nine was paying just $250,000 a year for the cricket rights, but you know, studies indicate they could have been, you know, earning, you know, over a hundred million dollars in advertising. Yeah, it's it's an extraordinary discrepancy when you when you think about it now. And one of the um the the key people in uh, seeking an understanding of this was John Rogers, uh, the father of Chris Rogers, uh, who was at the time the, the general manager at the the Western Australian Cricket Association. And a a, a story that he has he has told is that. The, um, the impetus that he got for writing the report that he did about what, you know, searching out what the value of, of cricket rights actually was, was that he had a, uh, a colleague in, in Perth who uh, was the uh, advertising rep or, or executive for Toyota in, in the state. And he got an indication from this rep that he wouldn't be continuing his signage or sponsorship deal with the Wacker, and upon questioning him about it was told oh well, i'm still advertising in cricket i'm just going to do it on tv now and that conversation led to a question about oh, well how much are you paying 
And then from from that, uh, Rogers was able to extrapolate, well, if that's how much he's paying for a single ad, X number of ads across X number of days, across X number of, of games of, of, um, of a season, this is how much money Packer is earning from television advertising to cricket. And when, you know, all those figures were, were, were tapped into the, into the calculator, it was, uh, it was a source of, uh, considerable, um, eye popping, you might say. Yeah, I bet it was. I mean, it's an extraordinary discrepancy between what they're being, what they're charging for the cricket rights and the revenue nine was able to gain i guess on the field though is what interests me that there was actually a lot of ramifications from the dodgy deal between bradman and packer so one of them was that the west indies ended up touring australia for six of the next 10 summers and the summer after the deal was done was extraordinary where there were six tests in australia three against the west indies three against England alternating between the t- teams. So Australia played England in a test, then the West Indies, and it wasn't for the Ashes against England. So, you know, not only did they have these strange summers, but then the Aussies had to face the, the Windies pace bowlers for six of the next 10 years. Yeah, it, it's um, it's something that uh, I think is probably undersold in terms of understanding the struggles of, of the Australian cricket team through the 1980s, that because... Essentially, because Packer loved the West Indies and thought they were, you know, charismatic and quality team and would bring people in through the gate and get people watching on television. That uh, which was probably true. Yes, absolutely true. But it just meant that an Australian team that didn't have quite the wherewithal, and particularly after um, losing um, a number of quality and senior players to to South Africa, just didn't have the depth to to compete on the on the same level. And so, you know, if you think about the the, the calendar these days and the number of different teams that, that Australia faces, you know, the, the opportunity, for instance, to have the, the series that the current Australian team had in, in, in uh, late January and early February against uh, Sri Lanka was was not uh, quite as quite as easy to to come by and I, and I think the um yeah the fact that they were playing the West Indies repeatedly I mean one of the the, the best examples was 1984 85 they played West Indies in 10 tests in succession five in the West Indies and five in Australia and the fact that that scheduling uh, coincided for instance with the end of Kim Hughes captaincy I think is uh, is an example of uh, how important that uh, that scheduling is in in the telling of of so many stories in the game. Just makes Alan Border's uh, batting record so remarkable. Also, there is lingering resentment from some of the smaller nations that Australia ignored throughout this period. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a feeling that Australia, you know, doesn't give enough attention to the smaller nations. Yeah, and and I think that uh, really is a uh, a side effect or or a um, or a legacy of of Packer and of, and of Packer insisting that you know there were certain games of 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 cricket against certain opponents that that he would refer to as wallpaper as opposed to the the really um, engaging or, or, or broad interest series that uh, you know in the eighties obviously featured the West Indies but the Ashes and then you know in in more contemporary times India and South Africa I think. Those three um, nations have have been the ones to bring in the crowds and the and the television ratings. So, uh, I mean, one of the um, extraordinary statistics uh, I don't I don't have it to to hand right at the moment, but 
I'm pretty sure in, I'm right in saying that Michael Clark, when he retired as, as an Australian test cricketer, had played more than half of his test matches over his career against India and England, which is, uh, you know, a, a remarkable kind mm. of, I suppose you'd say, distribution of, of, of fixturing given uh, the, the number of nations that, that currently play. And I think that sort of thinking and that sort of scheduling is is definitely a legacy of Packer. Another effect of the Bradman and Packer deal was that the ACB was limited in what profit it could make and therefore what it could pay the players. And this, you know, you could say led to the, the players being vulnerable to approaches from Rebel Tours to South Africa. Now you give some figures here for the 1986-7 season that Alan Border was on a retainer of between $36,000 to $55,000. And players like Simon O'Donnell, Steve Waugh and Dean Jones, th- their retainers were between like $13,000 and $16,000. So, you know, the players were being paid a very small amount because of this deal that, you know, drip-fed PBL and Nine money to the ACB. Yes, and I think there's... It's worth pointing out that uh, there was also, I think, a bit of a discrepancy among the players as to what they thought they were going to be getting out of the deal, what they wanted to be getting out of the deal. So uh, Greg Chappell and the players of his group, his generation, I think there was a diversity of views there as to how much money they wanted. Did they want so much money that they would be full-time professional and they wouldn't have another career? Or did they want enough money to support themselves alongside having another career? And you get... In the 80s, you get a bit of a hodgepodge of different players with with different, you know, um, Alan Border was a full-time professional cricketer the entire time he was he was playing and playing a lot in England and, and things like that. Uh, but then you get someone like uh, to name to name one Andrew Hilditch uh, was 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 anything but he was playing for South Australia and then Australia at the same time as he was he was becoming and then working as a lawyer and you get this sort of bridge between amateur era and, and full-time professionalism that is uh, in part a, a um, an effect of the fact that, yeah, the players were not being paid as much as many of them wanted and many of them thought and certainly what they were worth being paid relative to how much money was um, being brought in by television advertising. So, uh, you know, when you get the South Africa situation where the, the players are are offered, uh, you know, contracts worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars each um, and then the, the toing and froing between between Packer and several of those players to um, to get them to to stay home from from South Africa and and, and remain as establishment players. I mean, one of the people that I do feel very much for in that context is Border, because as a result of those negotiations, he ends up on a far worse wicket than um, a number of players who were still in the Australian system, but nowhere near as uh, essential or fundamental to the success of the Australian side. Yeah, some dodgy deals were done. Like PBL, you know, were paying players not to tour South Africa, but they were paying them more than they were paying players like Alan Border who who weren't going to tour South Africa. And, you know, it sort of divided the players. And you write in your book that, you know, Steve Wall was one of the a young Steve Wall was one of the early players signed to PBL and he never forgot the deal and started to realise that too much money was going into the coffers of PBL and then, you know, in 1997 became a central figure in the pay dispute. Yeah, and I think one of the effects of this entire era is that it bred a kind of um, a hardness, a corrosiveness in 
the players and in a number of them and, and you know, guys who fought a lot of battles, um, whether individually or collectively, in, in search of better pay and conditions. Yeah, it, it, it I think, yeah, it, it hardened their hardened their character, hardened their view of the world. And I think um, has meant that, yeah, the, the, I suppose, their view of Australian cricket and their view of playing for Australia is a lot more complex and a lot less, I suppose you'd say, rosy than um, I guess the image that um, perhaps uh, Justin Langer as the current coach of the Australian side would like to promote for the Australian team, that that, uh, that playing for Australia and playing cricket professionally was not um, something that was, that was simple, was not something that was um, just a matter of if I score enough runs or take enough wickets, I will get ahead in life. And, and, I, and I think that's something that probably needs a little bit more appreciation in terms of looking at the guys who lived through that era. It was a tough time for them, wasn't it? That, that As you say, that moving from a semi-professional to a professional game. You write that you know, Alan Border's last contract was $90,000. And then you know, a few years later, the captain was on half a million a year. So it really did change a lot in a short period yeah absolutely it did and uh yeah and as i say i i feel for for guys like border um another one was dean jones who played his last cricket for australia in the last year of the old <clears throat> pbl deal and and so yeah there was a lot of money that uh that was missed out on by those guys who'd done a lot of the hard yards with uh you know i suppose the the rivers of gold uh still to uh still to eventuate which which they did when the um when the pbl deal was was done and the acb did a recalculation based on the new rights deal and all of a sudden australia's elite players were in the position then that they continue to be now which is the highest paid players in australian sport and uh, you know what what follows that in terms of the formation of the ACA and all of the I suppose revenue deal revenue uh, sharing argy bargy that we've seen in subsequent years has generally been about the domestic players and the players beneath that that top tier. But from basically 1994 1995 to the present day, members of the Australian Test team and certainly the senior players have been on um, on a very good wicket indeed. One element to the book that really highlighted for me the the way in which this deal between Packer and his executive Linton Taylor was so sort of an albatross that you would never get a deal like that is when the deal was expiring, Linton Taylor started to bring all these sort of, I'm going to use the word dirty tricks to try and get the ACB to re-sign with him, knowing that this was the deal of the century and they wanted to maintain it by trying to, sort of gain leverage by saying that test cricket was dying and that if you don't re-sign with PBL marketing, you know, the game's going to die and all this stuff. It really sort of shows to me that Nine and PBL were trying to hold on to something. They really knew they couldn't. And the administration of the ACB was really starting to click on to what the game was worth through people like John Rogers. And then they did a deal in 1994 where they were getting paid $55 million over five years for the TV rights, which is a lot more than they were getting before. Yeah, it, it, as I as I mentioned earlier, there was a little bit of a shift at the end of the first ten year period because that was when um, when Bond nine and, and the ACB was not dealing with Lytton Taylor, but they were dealing with Jim Fitzmaurice, who was a very different uh, or very different character, had a very different attitude both in terms of where nine and PBL were at, but also where the wider cricket 
um, broadcasting and, and sport broadcasting rights situation was at. But yeah, the the huge, the seismic change, and, and I guess that is made plain by what I said earlier about the payments to the elite players is really, yeah, in the signing of a new deal at the end of the, the 15 years in 1994. And, and I guess the serendipity of that taking place at a time when Australia is about to become the best cricket team in the world, uh, you know, had that taken place at a time when the Australian cricket team was struggling, um, it may have been a different story and it may have been a different negotiation. But the strength of the Australian team entering into that phase meant that, uh, the ACB not only was more confident of its ground in terms of knowing the value of the game, knowing its capacity to market the game itself, the 1992 World Cup being a, a significant example there where that was all pulled together um, in a relatively short space of time and, you know, in a period when the Australian economy was in was in recession and yet they still made money out of it. Um, all those things increased the confidence of the ACB and so uh, there was then the ability... At the time, the guys in the chair were Graham Halbish as the chief executive and Alan Crompton as the chairman to push back against Packer, push back against Packer in a few ways in terms of negotiating for more money, but also pointing out that Linton Taylor wasn't actually doing a great job for them in terms of um, giving them the money that they were already due. Uh, and that brings an end to Linton Taylor's time at, um, at PBL because uh, Packer reasons quite rightly that Cricket was worth more to him than the uh, the continuing presence of a of a fairly hard bargaining executive. Now you mentioned Graham Halbish, and I want to end this podcast with how this deal and Packers' association with cricket really affects cricket now. Now Graham Halbish in 1997 was trying to launch Super Eight cricket, which I remember watching. There were eight players in the team, fourteen overs aside games and he tried to sell this limited overs version to News Corp but it was dismissed at the time. It's funny because he was way ahead of the curve here, Albish. I mean, this was before T20 cricket. Yeah, well, he, he has a, I think his role needs to be appreciated, not only in terms of Super 8s or looking towards, you know, third generation formats for the game, but his involvement with the setting up of the Cricket Academy um, and, and I suppose a greater measure of control uh, for the ACB in terms of junior cricket because there's also a period in the early 80s where Packer, uh, via Tim Caldwell, a board member who's sympathetic to Packer, is trying to um, basically buy out junior cricket in, in Australia so that the PBL wouldn't just own the present broadcasting situation, it would also effectively own rights to the, to the next generation of players. So, yeah, Halbish is a very... Um, important figure in terms of uh, the ACB developing its own sense of, of self-determination. The other one who I'd mention there is Malcolm Gray, who was chairman from 1986 to 1988, which is a very critical time because they're renegotiating uh, the original deal with PBL, although at the time PBL being run by, by Alan Bond rather than Kerry Packer. But just him coming into cricket administration with a fundamental attitude that this is not a great deal. Uh, to have the courage get all of the board forces together, uh, remembering at the time that this is still a board of, of 14 state-appointed directors rather than nine independents, so it's much harder to, to herd those cats effectively. But they are able to, in combination with, with others, get Australian cricket into a position where they're able to, to lead, really, rather than to follow 
the uh, the broadcasters. And it's interesting in terms of you mentioned super rates, but Packer, by the time of 2005, the last rights deal that he strikes, there's an element of him mirroring Bradman in that he doesn't see the value or the or the, the the future of domestic 2020 competitions. He thinks that it's just a sideshow in the same way that, that Bradman didn't appreciate the, the commercial value of advertising on television when cricket was on. You know, so the, the visionary in, at one time becomes the um well not maybe not yesterday's man, but but certainly becomes a lot more conservative and a lot less willing to take a risk there. And in that are sown the seeds of what we see now where the BBL was grown on Fox, then grown on 10 and is now on Fox and 7 and 9 aren't involved in cricket at all. Yep. And uh, let's end this. James Sutherland said when he did the new TV deal and they ditched Channel 9 that no organisation has put more into cricket financially or promoted it more than the Nine Network and Australian cricket should be grateful for it. Well, why do you think then Cricket Australia was so keen to ditch Channel 9 last year? It's a it's a good question. I, th- I think ultimately it, it it came down to raw dollars and, you know, the... the the combination, I think, of raw dollars and also a, a view that it was it was time for a change. It was time to deal with someone different. I, I think the the relationship between Nine and and Cricket Australia was um, was not was not great by the end, and that was something that is not exactly a, um, a, an isolated story in terms of where Australian cricket got to. And certainly, we now have last year's Ethics Review to or Ethics Centre review to illustrate that Cricket Australia by that stage had problematic relationships with a whole lot of commercial partners. So the, the fact that that was what the relationship was like, plus Cricket Australia were very, very keen to, you know, reach a certain dollar figure um, and, and the, the, the seven Fox combination um, was to be the, the, the one to do that. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like uh, Cricket Australia just wanted a new new era. So perfect timing for your book, Dan, to come out. You, you know, you were able to really, you know, encapsulate that sort of Channel 9 era of cricket so well in your book. So I would encourage all the listeners to go and get it. Bradman and Packer, the deal that changed cricket. Just see how history has been whitewashed to tell the, well, your book tells the true story. So thank you, Dan. No problems at all, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much to Daniel Bredig for coming on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I've been your host, Andrew Menzel. You've been listening to Cricket Unfiltered, and we'll be back soon with another show. 